Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Reboots, Remakes, Comic Book Movies, and Sequels to Reboots, Remakes, and Comic Book Movies. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by The Three. The psychological thriller with a twist that'll leave you breathless. Stream it now. Welcome everyone to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers. Um, I write and direct things. Scott, uh, Scott, geez. Um, I'm not Scott. You are not. You just said your name. <laughs> I would like to be. Maybe one day. <laughs> Don't we all? work hard enough. Uh, Todd's a full-time producer, musician, all the things, and we use all of that information that we've learned along the way to, to analyze movies, tear them apart, see what they're made of. We got a lot going on today. I think we can dive right on right into the newest content. Todd oh, God. <laughs> content. You, you had a great rant before. Why don't you tell everyone your feelings on content? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I was I think I, I I likened content to you in our conversation to like a flyer that that's stuck under your windshield wiper on your on your windshield. Uh, I just and and people might disagree, but I hate that word. I I it used to be something that meant something, and now it it doesn't at all. It's like somebody handing you a free CD back in the CD days, like on Sixth Street in Austin, saying, "Hey, listen to my band." You're not going to listen to that CD. Um, it doesn't mean anything to you. It was, it was free. You didn't sacrifice anything to get it. You know, nothing about it. It's yeah. You know, uh, so I, I hate the term. I hate the idea of making content. What you're making is art. And if you using the word content waters it down, belittles it. So, and I'm not, I'm not saying that because, uh, you know, I have my feelings about social media, but it's, it's not about social media in general. It's about Coining the term content means that whatever you're making just doesn't mean anything. What you're, if what you're making is art, all of a sudden it has meaning. It has substance. It has a purpose. Um, and I think that society, we just talk about content, content, content. Like, what does that even mean? Like, doesn't mean anything. There's, there's no substance behind the purpose of that or what that is. It could be a video. It could be written a uh, 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 article. It could be, you know, a tweet it, or an X or whatever you're calling it now. It it could be a, a blog. Could be so many different things. So say it's just a blanket term for just you know vomiting. This is me here. Look at me. Listen to me. You know, watch me. Uh, and that is is so exhausting. And and me, it, it just waters down what actual artists do so much that they get lost in the noise and it is a a damn shame and i might be sound, sounding like a 43 year old you know ranting about and i don't get it and the kids do but no you need to understand this is a different change than when our kid our parents than the change between our parents and us is it is a totally different change than parents between the change between us and our kids. It is a world now that is 100% connected, which is good in some ways and bad in others. I don't want to know what other people think when it comes to the way that I think I just want to know what I think. And I get, I lose myself. I lose my own self, my own mental self. When 
I go down this rabbit hole of social media or internet in general. And I find myself when I stop doing that for a while, every single time, every single time I walk away, I'm like, Oh, I start to see clearer who I am, what I like. And, and the idea of content is, is the, the anchor of all of that. Sorry. I love that. I think whenever I'm listening to that, I'm thinking about, okay, what do I, what's that delineation for me? And for me, I think it's thought like, was this made with thought or was this a thoughtless creation? Um, because I've seen ads that are absolutely art. Yes. And then, you know, I've seen movies that are absolutely content. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> what you're making point. Oh my God. isn't in and of itself indicative of what, you know, uh, is underneath it. And so you can spend two years making content or, and you can spend an afternoon making art. All that's really behind it is, is there anything personal to me, um, that I'm putting into this? If, if there is, then that's probably art. That's something that's, uh, vulnerable about it. And so many people are making things that's really just there to stick their head out above the fray, above yes. the herd. Oh, if you yes. Will. <laughs> yes. There's still a zebra. There's still a zebra trying to get yes. noticed. Yeah. With that in mind, what are yeah. we doing today, man? Today we are covering uh, the new Nick Cage film, Dream Scenario. So if you haven't seen this film, uh, please pause this episode, go watch it. Uh, the current time of recording is still in theaters, but it, it might be out streaming. Pause this episode, go watch that because we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. Bunch of stuff. We'll look at a little bit. There's a thing they do in, in the film with cinematography that I really appreciate. It's a combination of things, but we'll look at some of the cinematography selling the absence of something. Right? How do you reveal that there's nothing happening? Um, we'll also dive into some of the story and writing, uh, a little bit of the structure, but we'll, of course, we're going to talk about blending in and viral frame. And then at the very end of the episode, the best thing for last, we're going to listen to a new Mad Valley track. I don't want to be careful. Um, yeah, so stay tuned for that and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the, of the film. A hapless family man finds his life turned upside down when millions of strangers suddenly start seeing him in their dreams. It's written and directed by uh, Christopher Borgley. Cinematography by Benjamin Loeb, featuring Nicolas Cage as Paul Matthews, Julianne Nichols, Nicholson as Janet Matthews, Dylan Galula as Molly, and Michael Sarah as Trent. Who's certain they've actually had a dream about me? Okay, let's explore this. This might get us somewhere interesting. Does anyone want to share the content of their dream? Yes, you? Well, um, <clears throat> I'm in this forest, wandering around, eating these strange mushrooms. And I'm in like a full tuxedo for some reason. <laughs> and there's other people also dressed up, but they're all scared, like frozen in fear. And then I realize it's because of this really tall man running towards me. talking to me? Yes. Paul, he'll kill us. Paul, I've never seen these. Beautiful. No! No! And, uh, 
that's all I remember. <laughs> ah, interesting. So I'm looking at the mushrooms instead of helping. Oh, I suppose, yeah. Okay, let's hear another one. Anyone? So I'm just observing again. But that's funny. <laughs> Interesting one. Anyone else? So this is a, a movie with a lot going on under the hood. I'm curious, what do you make in totality? Fun experience, first of all, as a movie. And then I guess, uh, what do you take away from this whole experience? Yeah, it was fun. I, I like seeing Nick Cage on screen all the time i just like him i think he's a i just i just like him as an actor i like watching everything he does um uh I, I, you know i don't think he's gonna you know win oscars or anything but that's not the point the point is is that the experience of watching nicholas cage on screen is is enjoyable uh for me uh i liked what he did with this character there were some moments where i thought wow only nicholas cage could do that the way that he responded to somebody. Usually it was in response to somebody's, um, to what somebody would say. And, you know, he would do this kind of like, like I'm trying to process that in my brain kind of thing. And then he would react and it felt really honest and real. And it was, it was, um, something that only I think Nicholas Cage could do. And as for the, the film as a whole, yeah, I saw it as, um, uh, well, the way that I responded to it was, yeah, this whole idea of virality and the fleetfulness, fleetingness, fleet, how it is fleeting and that it, it sometimes you go viral for things that you don't intend to, don't want to, um, but you can't do anything about it because the world then has that, right? And it is, it's, you're just part of the world in that way. But then I, I don't know if it's a call about like cancel culture or anything like that. I have no idea, but obviously he got, you know, canceled for something he didn't do. Uh, and, and it, it was really sad. So it was also, also a story I feel like of just feeling incomplete in general and how quote unquote fame or going viral or having people like you is not going to fulfill, is not going to fill that hole inside you if it, if it already exists. For him, his hole was his book. He wanted to he wanted to write a book, but he didn't even start it, at least at the beginning of the movie. But that was the hole he felt he wanted to be he wanted to be a researcher and, and a writer and be, quote unquote, famous for that, I guess. But he um, couldn't get there. He just was this incomplete person. And so he really welcomed being in people's dreams because now all of a sudden he's got attention. And that's all everybody is fighting for now is attention but it turned out that not that doesn't always come without a cost, um, as he found out, you know. So I'm sure it means 30 things to 30 different people, 30 different things to 30 different people. But um, that is just how I responded to it. And I thought it was done really beautifully in so many ways. 
the ending was really fantastic for me where he it was almost like he realized that he always had what was making him what was fulfilling what should have been fulfilling him he always had it there he, with his wife and his and his kids and it was just heartbreaking the scene at the end or towards the end where he was telling her goodbye and really quick i remember the cut the cut was like whoa that was a that was a jump cut cuz he wasn't looking that he his his body was facing a different way just a second ago he was look his eyeline was different that was a jump cut and then you realize he goes in and hugs her and then you realize oh that was just his thoughts and he was too afraid to do it and so he didn't do it and he went away and then um he ends up having this dream with her fulfilling her dream and then telling telling her he wishes that this were real and then he floats away because it's too late like he messed it up but he did realize at the end that he had always had reality with him throughout the whole time but he was looking outward instead of inward so it, it and it was just a beautiful moment the way that he looked at her when he said that he wished it was real i really felt it i really felt it i felt her too throughout the movie i always at the beginning i looked at her as kind of like this just ancillary character at first i didn't know okay how how much because she's not in the 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 trailers or anything very much so i was like how much is she a part of the story is she just there as to for us to know that she he's married or is she an actual character and i realized she she's a huge character like halfway through i was i was like oh my god yeah she's very important i mean all the conversations they have in their bedroom and and everything and uh, she really loves him for him and wants the best for him and he sees that uh, he takes that for granted so at the end, the way that she looks at him too is just perfect because she had described this dream to him as what she wants earlier. And now she's getting it. He's giving it to her. And so she has nothing but adoration and love for him. And yet they can't be together and he floats away. And it's it's just heartbreaking and a reminder to us, I feel like, that we need to look around us at what we have now and and who we have around us and not take that for granted for something that may or may not happen, you know, attention, fame, virality, uh, you know, all of that stuff. Look at what we have now. And that really hit home for me because I mean, look, I'm an artist. I would like to, for my record and my music to reach a lot of people. But at the end of the day, I've got my family that I care more about than any of that shit, you know? Um, and just a, even if I already know it, it's a nice reminder that other people know it too and that I'm not I'm not like the weird guy for thinking that, you know. I'll stop there. I don't know, you could keep going. That's good stuff, bro. Oh. <laughs> like watching it I, I didn't take nearly as much away because most of my thoughts were just around the uh, the the metaphor, you know, of the of what he was experiencing. And I really wasn't appreciating some of the emotional needs and voids that you were you were finding. Like that just didn't pop out to me as much in the holistic way that it hits you. Like I definitely saw that he's got this deep burning desire. And now this thing is happening. He's going to want to try to turn that into his favor. Not realizing that trying to steer culture does not work for anyone. Like it's a bulldozer. No. It's not, it's not, you know 
one you're driving. <laughs> it's one you're in front of. Um, and, yeah. and yet you're right. Like he was looking for that. It, to me, it looked like a little less intentional or at least less desired, but you're absolutely right. It was something that he, he deeply wanted, even though he was saying otherwise, he was acting like he got it. He had it. He was fine. Right. Even whenever he's in class, that, that clip we played before we hear that clip start, what he says right before that is something to the effect of, uh, how does it feel to go viral? One of his students asks, and he's like, Oh, I, I don't know. I, I actually deeply value my anonymity. If you can believe that. Um, and he's just trying to, you know, shrug it off Mr. Humble pie over here, but he is eating it up every ounce of it. He is just trying to soak in and, and use, um, and obviously you can't blame him for wanting to use it, but I, I do kind of blame him for not acknowledging that he actually likes it. I think starting with that level of inauthenticity uh, uh, can only backfire. But if you say on the outset, like, this is really fun, like, hopefully it goes well, you know, you, you can't always control it. Like acknowledging that on the front end, I think, lends you more credibility later when things start to turn. Not that that was going to change anything for him in this circumstance, but authenticity, I think, does a lot of favors for you one way or another. And so, yeah, watching it. But I, I think you're right, man. I think just the level of him not really appreciating everything that he has right there. Um, and and it just plays out. The more I think about your comment, the more I can see it laced throughout the film. They're at dinner. And what does he tell his kids? Like, put your phones away. Let's have a real conversation. Then the phone rings. and He's like, I got to get this. <laughs> like, not immediately. He tries to let it ring out. And then it persists. And he gets up. And instead of doing what he said, which was to, t to turn it off, he sees who it is, and it's this thing that he really wants. He wants to be invited to this dinner party. And what is he? He's like, I have to take this. Dad, you you said. Um, and now he's having this conversation, and he's like, yeah. I, am I finally, is this the invite I've been, you know, asking for? Uh, no. And like the guy just laughs at his, his hopes of being on the in crowd. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it's reinforced. It's there in the film. Um, and, and it's something to walk away with, uh, even if you're a little bit more hard headed <laughs> about yeah. finding that message as, uh, some co-hosts are <laughs> <laughs> that, that, and that's totally fine. Like I said, I feel like it's one of those films where if you have 30 different people watch it, they'll have 30 different meanings or 30 different feelings about it. I was <clears throat> halfway through it. I was like, I'm not going to like this, you know? Mm. And then I ended up really, really enjoying it. Partially because it was very disjointed, I felt like it was, and it's hard to describe why, too, but I think that might be the point in some cases. Um, like the ending, it just felt so hopeless. I mean, you know, him in the basement signing books and then the, the light falls on his head and he's in France and his publisher or whatever the guy is, Michael Sarah's character, doesn't really give a crap that you know he's holding freddy claw hands and stuff he's just like oh you're gonna do it or what but but i mean it, it, okay so the scene where um he's in the thoughts boardroom and he's talking to them and they're saying they're pitching sprite to him and i mean he that was what made me think oh yeah this does feel like a like a story about everyone wanting to go viral or, or people wanting to go viral and, and, and attention and stuff because, because he doesn't have control over why he's viral and he doesn't like that. 
he wants to he wants it to be about his book and he turns sprite down like well basically he turns sprite down he's like i don't want that i want this to be about my book that felt very intentional be, uh, to, for the character because most people would be like oh okay what are they going to pay me and you know okay what does that involve what are we doing here and yet he and he's a very <laughs> he's a guy who does not have you know like a lot of gumption uh so for him to actually tell them no 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 no, i want this to be my, my book it's you know uh and that required a lot of self reflection and insight into what he wants um mm. for him to actually say that you know but then typical of this character he calls his wife and's like well they pitch sprite they think sprite really is interested in obama and and you know and so he's looking for validation even from her from someone who loves him regardless and he's he's jealous that this other guy that she works with is there and they're working and he's not there so he's jealous of her but he also wants her validation even though he's already got it and it's very disjointed in that regard right like so which makes it feel real because i think people in general are disjointed and very what's the term where you're you're one thing here and you're another thing here uh, you're, temperamental uh, God, and effervescent yeah uh, no yeah but you're just you're all over the place essentially yeah and it felt very much like that with him a question for you did you laugh out loud when he's in molly's apartment and he farts <laughs> unfortunately no? i did i hate that kind of humor <laughs> and it fucking it, i know but it was so out of nowhere man. so good it just worked it just worked the second time too the second time okay so the first time there were a couple of chuckles the second time the whole theater started laughing <laughs> it was great great timing uh, great too, editing but... great like scene work between the two of them to really make it awkward and natural like because he's after yeah. that first one she's really trying to push past it she still wants her fantasy um and she's working really hard to get him to just shut up <laughs> like just just be sexy for five <laughs> seconds and he just will yes. not it's actually a really like it's a healthy thing <laughs> like stop bro yeah <laughs> it's uh, like just shut your mouth <laughs> oh yeah, and then whole- she says and then she tells him to take the lead and then she takes the lead because he doesn't. It's just so sad. God. It's really sad. And it's the perfect juxtaposition of fantasy versus reality. Like the things. And it's so nice for a change that it's inverted. Because normally it would be the opposite, right? It would be him fantasizing about her. And then it becomes this other like really gross thing. Instead of being gross here, it's just really, I don't know, pitiful. Um, and yeah. it's just lonely like there's so many emotions that come out of that scene and i that that whole dynamic being on its head made it so much more fun and and interesting um just to yeah man that's great writing great acting the cutting there like all of it is just peak like the lighting i love the lighting in that scene because on its face this looks like a very normal like oh it's an apartment it's what an apartment should feel like but whenever you start looking at the intercutting of the fantasy and the reality like they do it so beautifully him in the corner like in the fantasy is just very dark and it there's this 
almost sexiness to the darkness. Um, and then <laughs> in reality, like he's kind of shoved into the corner. Like there's a street light kind of blasting through the window to, to highlight the, the, the jacket on the wall. Like it just all feels very like, Oh, this isn't sexy at all. Yeah. Um, it's oh, all of it. It all just works in perfect harmony from everyone on set, man. My God. Yeah. Uh, same thing that, that cut that you mentioned earlier about him trying to say goodbye in the front yard with his ex-wife or his soon to be ex-wife. It's really unclear where they are. And suddenly it goes to them hugging and you're like, Oh yes, good. Something good is finally going to happen. <laughs> and then that cut to reveal that, Oh wait, no, that was in his head. Like that's a beautiful, beautiful job just of, making sure you're communicating to the audience on a visual level what's happening without ever putting your finger directly on it. Like that's masterful storytelling um, because it's easy to mess that up. But when you're working with a really good cinematographer um, and editor, like, and the director being at the helm of all that, like just being able to make sure we're doing all the right little touches. The to sound design is enhanced just a little bit here and then we're going to drop that out when we go back to this wider shot to in, in reinforce the distance between these two characters to let you know that, oh, wait, no. Oh, man. Okay. You know, and it's just, it's really well yeah. done, man. I think this movie, if you were to look at it on its face, it looks like a really simple project, but there's so much going on underneath that on every level, um, performance-wise, as well as, you know, all the... Uh, cinematography, all of it's playing in, in, you know, a very tightly wound synergism that, you know, you, you just don't get out of a lot of, a lot of movies of this budget range. Um, what did you think of uh, uh, Nicholas Cage's performance? Dude, he is unreal. He, whenever you give him this kind of script that requires idiosyncrasy, there's really nobody better. Like same thing with adaptation, right? Like you could put other people in the role and it's a pretty good film, but it's not adaptation. This isn't dream scenario without Nicolas Cage. Like, sure. You could probably get Jeff Daniels in there and he's going to knock it out of the park, but it's just the little things. I mean, I love Nicolas Cage's ability to be so vulnerable as an actor. And I don't mean like conveying vulnerability as a, as a character. I mean, as an actor, to put himself in these very vulnerable positions. He's going to shave his head into this crazy looking bald thing happening on his head. A lot of actors don't want to see themselves on screen that way. They don't want to see themselves overweight and, and these frumpy clothes and with this weird posture and this crazy gait. When he walks around as this character, completely different from any other character you've seen Nicolas Cage walk around as. And it it's this character. He built this character from the floor up. And you can feel it his professorship, all of life's weights on his shoulders as he kind of wobbles around. Like that's Nicholas Cage just completely selling out to this film. That is hard for a lot of actors. I've, I've seen other actors who say they want to be great, but really they just want to be great looking on screen. Oh <laughs> man, that's a great point. Wow. You know, and Nicholas Cage doesn't care. He wants to do the movie. Yeah. He's, he's selling out to it. And if you ever get to work with him, you're incredibly lucky because he does this for every project, even the ones that I hate. Like I've seen Nicolas Cage films that I just don't like because it's not my kind of movie. He sells out anyway. He's going all the yeah. way every time. That's a dream. God, that's a dream to work with an actor yeah. like that who just doesn't care. He's like, I'm going to be 
whatever this character needs to be bar none god that's cool is there anything cooler than that man no man like that's god that's a great really well put uh and and why probably it's always welcoming to see him on on screen because i know that whatever whatever's happening on screen is a hundred percent art from him it's and like like what you said it's a hundred percent effort or what was the word you used um with the uh, whatever it's a hundred percent him producing something for this role not caring like i wouldn't be surprised if he never looked at dailies like it doesn't matter to him you know did we get it okay great you know it doesn't matter like oh there's a hair on he doesn't care it's what is the what is best for the character and and yeah great point great point that's that's why it's comforting to watch him because i know what i'm gonna get you know yeah yeah Yeah. so yeah as a whole man i i really enjoyed it i went in wanting something weird and it was so much better than i expected walking in oh good to know you know to have all the 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 layers of thought going on i didn't expect that i expected like oh this is going to be a funny Nicolas cage film not like oh this is a a critique maybe commentary definitely uh certainly uh, uh god a portrayal of society mm-hmm. you know and and cultural values um and social i don't know atmospheres that we've created for ourselves for like viral i know we're using dreams as kind of a, a substitution for social media right that's all dreams are in this in this it's a metaphor um and it works perfectly I'll, i don't know i'll run through a few things that i i scribbled down in the theater and in, in the darkness of the alamo draft house lighting cool. um <laughs> and and like jump in as always whenever you you feel like it just no farting uh so story <laughs> no <promises. variety. laughs> and one of the little things that I appreciate is the structure of the film, and they do a number of things structurally that I think is great. Uh, but one of the simple things that they do is we have very early on a conversation with Sheila about publishing, right? She's going on about, oh, yeah, I have this new research. It's not, she's trying to downplay it. And he's like, oh, where are you publishing? Nature. That's like the big one, right? I assume, anyway. I'm not a scientist. Um, and He's just, you can just feel the anxiety creeping up and the frustration and the what about meism. Like it's just all right there. And he starts fighting. And I love the transition into his car, listening and playing it back and seeing him react to what he's saying. Like that's such a genius idea. So great. Um, because now you get to intercut him reacting to him delivering. And then in some cases we're listening to the playback as we're watching the scene. Dude, I loved (laughs) that. When that happened, I thought, Oh my God, this is why has no one ever done that before? That is so smart and brilliant and like fulfilling because I, I am, I felt like I was experiencing it. I was experiencing what he was experiencing, listening to it in the car while watching it it was so cool like nothing i'd ever felt before it's a genius little thing if you want stuff that's in that exact vein i would recommend reality on hbo it's this uh sydney sweeney film unbelievable they they ramp it up to like a 10 like it's just crazy and yeah amazing film and their use of that you're absolutely right i was feeling all the empathy of we're in the scene now back again in the the diner but feeling him in the car, <laughs> like 
genius, genius use of audio and sound design there. And, and so we, we go through that thing and it's so good because then we jump into a new conversation, you know, a few scenes later with his ex and she's talking about the reason I really wanted to see you is if I could write this, publish an article about this. You're publishing? <laughs> like he gets immediately in his feelings again, like everyone is publishing except me. And you need that first scene though, to appreciate what it means to him as he's sitting with this, uh, his ex, because his ex doesn't know, but we do. And we can feel all that anxiety ramp right back up, the frustration and like, oh, okay, well, sure. And as the film unfolds, we also know in subsequent scenes, right, how important publishing is to his ego and his psyche. Like it's everything. And so it's a really nice setup to help us feel his tension and reinforces his unrealized dreams and goals. Um, so that, as you said, you know, we go into thoughts, that whole meeting with the, the brand team or brand development. And we know as he keeps pulling back to his book, the, the plant book, no, not plants, ants. <laughs> like They don't know. They don't care. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the first time they circle back to it. Yep. What about my book? And <laughs> Trent, you know, Michael Sarah's character, he's like, what book? <laughs> like his first thoughts after just saying, like, yeah, man, the book, we're going to go for it. What book? <laughs> like, How do you like forgotten. that huge long pause that he does? <laughs> oh, yeah. <It> turns <laughs> Let's reset. He turns around for almost a full minute. Like, what the hell? <laughs> I want to apologize first. I didn't really have a dream about you. I just thought it would be a good thing to say. It was funny. <laughs> like, dude, that, yeah, that, all of that stuff works so well. And so we get into zebras early on, right? And this is the whole. I don't know, thesis of the film, which is zebras have stripes to blend in with the herd. I don't know if like evolutionarily that's actually true. That might be that it's, if not, it's really good bullshit. What I've read in recent studies, this was such a random thing that they brought up that I just read random stuff on the internet. And one of the things they said that the, the color, the stripes help reduce like insects uh like mosquitoes i think i forget what it is like a ziti fly or something but uh it reduces okay. the amount of interaction that they have with some of these uh pests uh so to speak and catching diseases and that and so for whatever reason that camouflage also maybe hides them from lions and stuff but also hides them from other nuances or nuisances nuisances yeah <laughs> but anyway his his thesis here that applies to the film um is that it helps you blend in with the herd because if you stick your head out you become a target but what else could be sticking your head out be good for and the student says uh for dating that's right standing out can be good is good for mating um and so that becomes like a sub like part of the thesis so if we look at Paul in other people's dreams, he never does anything, right? He's just a present observer. He never intervenes, right? In the opening, his daughter's dream, she floats away and he just watches. And what's interesting about her dream is, and this is probably true of all the dreams in here, but in her dream, you could analyze her dream as a fear of leaving home, right? They're in their backyard. The first thing that happens is car keys break a table in... And it's a frog, right? A keychain, um, which is an interesting to me. It just makes me think of Magnolia. Um, exactly. Right? That happens. And then a shoe falls into the pool. And it's it's all these, to me, symbols of movement, 
of you can walk out, you can drive away. And then what does she do? She floats away. And so it's a, to me, she's having nightmares about leaving home and her dad is just standing by and not, not doing anything, not helping her not trying to keep her whatever. Like, so just analyzing Sophie, um, is, is kind of interesting, but regardless, she's describing this dream and what is he's so frustrated because he did nothing to help her. Like what? I, I, do you don't think I would do that? Do you honey? Just stand by and not try to help that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that in real life. Like he's just so kind of beside himself in this, like, I don't know, kind of nerdy way. And same thing with the student dreams. And this is where the cinematography is interesting of showing quote unquote, nothing. How do we show nothing? Um, and for, it starts with wide shots of the class raising their hands in response to questions, right? Who's here for the lecture? Hands raised, right? Um, anyone here dreamed about me? Everyone raises their hands. And then later on, after we've heard a few dreams and seen more hands being raised, any dreams where I actually do something, nobody raises their hands, right? And so the wide shots of hands being raised establishes a rhythm and action to contrast when hands are not raised. So... Ask a question, wide shot, hands raised. Ask a question, wide shot, hands raised. We're going from those close-ups to those wide shots, hand raising. And then finally, when you want to show something isn't happening, we've built up a rhythm and an expectation so that now we can ask a question. Does anyone have a dream where I actually do something? Wide shot, nothing. And it just feels like, oh, well, that's interesting. And it's important for a lot of reasons, but uh, just structurally making sure you build that rhythm and expectation um, is really nice. And it's important if you want to show an absence of something to create a visual reference for what should be happening. And now when you take it away, you feel the absence of it. Yeah. And of course it underscores the entire point here, which is Paul never did anything to anyone specifically, nothing to these students. They have no reason to fear him, um, which will become important later on. Paul is king of blending in, right? Paul took his wife's name, <laughs> which is, you know, hey, if that's you out there, cool, man. You know, it's very atypical of guys um, in most cultures, uh, certainly in American culture. But I think it reinforces Paul's mentality of I'm here to blend in. He's disappearing into his marriage. And even he's fantasized about other women, right? And they have a very interesting, frank conversation because um, his wife just asked him, right? Uh, Jan is like, have you fantasized about the women? Uh, yeah. And she's not offended. She doesn't like what? Like none of that, mm -hmm. but she does react in the sense of, but you've never acted on it. No. Can you imagine me trying to get away with cheating? And she laughs like, oh, you're right. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and so at every stage, right? He doesn't fight the armed intruder. Whenever the guy breaks into the house and he's got a knife, he doesn't do anything. He's blending in with his family. Like at no point is he trying to. Now, to be fair, I don't, if he doesn't have a gun, I don't think that's necessarily the wrong decision there. Now, if he, this guy starts charging in, swinging away. Okay. And he, and then he does nothing. That's probably not good. But seeing this guy who's frightened, um, he's clearly having violent ideas. Um, but at the same time, he's not acting on it. I don't think any good can if you're able to, in that circumstance, be completely logical, I don't think intervening at that point is going to wield anything good. You're probably going to get killed. Uh, that guy's got a mm -hmm. knife. You do not charge someone with a knife because 
you just get damaged. Um, yeah. It's incredibly hard from what I understand uh, to disarm someone holding a knife. Now, if he had been holding a gun, you absolutely. Um, and he's doing nothing. Probably not good in that circumstance. But here, I think even though he doesn't feel good about it, obviously, um, I think he probably realistically did the right thing um, by blending in. Um, same thing early in the film, the wife, Janet, wanted him to record the conversation with Sheila about <laughs> intelligence. You're not using intelligence, are you? What? No. And then later on, it's quotes, intelligence. Um, and he does, right? He records his conversation with Sheila, but he lies about it. He deletes it and then lies to his wife about it. Now, the question is, why? Is it because it didn't go his way? Right? The whole conversation really didn't go his way. Or is it because ultimately he's just not that kind of guy that's going to record someone and then use it against them to punish them? I don't know. I, my, my instinct in watching it the first time was it really didn't go his way and now he's embarrassed about it and he, therefore he doesn't want to use it. But I think there might be something to the other thing that maybe he's really just not the kind of person who's going to try to use that against someone, but probably starts with, yeah, that didn't work out the way I wanted. And so it's better to just play it the way I want it instead of playing the reality for my wife. Cause like you said, his wife matters to him. Janet matters a lot. That's mm -hmm. his world. Um, and if you were to go and say, yeah, you know, we're talking about it. We haven't worked through it. That's so much better than pl hitting playback and sounding like a chump. <laughs> like, yeah, no one wants that. You want to be a hero no. in front of your, your SO, mm -hmm. especially as a guy, uh, machismo still exists. It does. And then Paul sticks his head up. So to me, it, he doesn't stick his head up when he starts doing the interviews. That's part of it. Right. When he starts being involved, he is kind of sticking his head up, but it's in reaction to there is a moment where he actually makes a decision to do something that I think is uh, maybe a little bit weightier than going on TV and um, asking questions of his students, which is Molly's sex dream In her dream. He's very active, right? He takes control uh, and she digs that about him, man. But then. The re reenacting her sex dream, he's very inadequate. And this to me is Paul's first attempt to actually be what people imagine him to be. Because isn't sticking your head up supposed to be good for mating? At this point, this is the one time it's supposed to work out in your favor. <laughs> uh, and, and it really doesn't. My man couldn't get his gun out of the holster. <laughs> right. Dear God. That's. <laughs> But, you know, like, was that part of the script? Was that something they thought about? Like, what, to add the fart there? It was just, how, I think, I can just imagine being part of that writing session where you sit down and you think, what is the literal worst thing that could happen? You know, that's, that, you know, you can show, like, on a screen and not, like, make people vomit. Like, you know, be, like, crapped himself or something. Maybe that would be too much. But, like, just a little... It's just the most embarrassing thing ever. That's pretty much it. Yeah, that's it. Like, oh, I'm in front of this really attractive woman who wants me, like really wants me. Look at me. She wants me and I'm going to fart and not yes, get remotely close to executing yeah, here. Before she even touches me. Yes. <laughs> oh, well written. All that. Um, but then everything sours. It's at that point where everything turns. Everyone's dreams turn violent, right? Students leave class and 
he went from doing nothing, just being a, uh, an amusement in people's dreams to now violently attacking everyone. And what does he say to this, right? It's their dreams. I have nothing to do with it. And he's talking to his friend, the, the Dean, um, trauma is a trend and he's really frustrated about everyone blaming him for what they're experiencing, even though it has nothing to do with him. Like they're projecting him into their own minds and calling that a trauma. Um, and it's a really interesting critique of what's happening right now, or at least the comments about it. And he walks out of that class, right. Or his conversation. Um, and he finds loser spray painted onto his car. And now he's finally starting to have enough. And so he turns around after finding, you know, his car spray painted and getting really upset. And everyone is standing around and watching the recording him on their phones, right? Like he's some kind of animal in a zoo, zero empathy or understanding. And to me, that's another comment about the way we treat people in public. I don't know how many times I've seen footage of someone recording a really messed up thing happening. And all you're thinking is your instinct was to go for your phone. Like your instinct, someone yeah. having a meltdown was, I want to record this. Whoa. Uh, okay. I mean, sometimes that can be a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Like a cop going off on some, someone getting pulled over for a speeding ticket. Yeah. Okay. Pull out your phone. Like you're not going to intervene with the cop. Like there's no way. So the next best thing you can do is at least record the, the, the interaction or something. But on average, I don't know, man, people having a hard time in public and, it's weird. And this is very much that this guy is being victimized twice over one, someone just messed up his car, vandaled his car. And then now he's being victimized again by people recording him reacting to it. Like, do you know anyone who's going to have graffiti on their car, turn around and be like, thanks y'all. I appreciate it. Like I've been meaning to get around to that. I'm like, no, it's absolute fury. Yeah. yeah. And so his wife gets kicked off her big project, right? This, this is all part of the fallout. And the guy, I think his name is Chris or Mike or something. He says, look, I'm against cancel culture. And yet he won't stick his head out for her, right? Is he complicit? It's one thing to say, I, I don't agree with cancel culture. I don't like it. I think it's stupid and it's a really unhealthy thing. And yet how many people will say that, but also won't help, right? It's like, I don't like this, but I also don't want to get caught up in your stuff. I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion about that because I'm certainly sympathetic to everyone involved, whether it's the person who's going through something or the person who's now being harassed by association. You know, that's, yeah. that's tough. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that there's a, a great answer for that. I certainly would have a lot of respect for anyone who stood by their employee or whatever. But when the mob comes for you, man, that's... It's tough there. You're on an Island. Um, and so yeah. every reaction that he makes now though, is only used against him, right? It's further proof that he is what they believe him to be. And so I think this is why whenever he crashes his friend's basement and he's stuck down there and he can't turn off the lights, that's a whole metaphor for his inability to escape, you know, the light of the, oh. his situation. And Great it's just point, man. Right. Wow. And it's funny, like watching it, you're just like, yep, you know, when it rains, it pours kind of thing. But it's also playing as a metaphor for his inability to escape, you know, his situation. 
It doesn't matter how far down they bury him. <laughs> he cannot get away. Yeah. And so that ends up leading us to Norio, the whole dream sleep bracelet thing. And I, what I love about this little add on is his suffering is now used to sell products, right? It's commercializing people's drama. And that's ultimately what news and media in general seems to do, right? They dig up drama and they sell it, right? And it's even better if you can sell it first as a good story, sell it on its way up. And then until it goes bad, then you can sell the fallout, sell it right back when it's on its way down. You know, you cut to a commercial. Um, Oh, Joe is just sweeping the nation with whatever hugs and kisses. And oh, is Joe a serial rapist? I don't know. Like, or whatever. It's like, I don't know. I was here to just help people <laughs> like free hugs or whatever. It's like, it's, you know what? On the way up, on the way down, it sells equally as well. Uh, probably even better on the way down. Yeah. And so what's cool about Norio though, is it finally gives Paul an opportunity to finally try to actively enter someone's dreams. Something that he's actually never done. He's never yeah. willfully gone into anyone's cell phone, into their dreams. It's until now. And to your point earlier, he enters his wife's dream, right? And now he's giving her the dream that she wanted. And he's in the oversized talking heads suit, uh, which is so comically like perfect. And they reunite and he floats away exactly like his daughter did at the beginning. Now he's leaving this thing and that's, part that's his nightmare right he's he's no longer going to get to be in this space that he actually wanted in the first place even though he didn't realize and that's the interesting thing about this arc i feel like the normal way to take this arc is to let someone finally have the thing that they want except now they know that they want it here he knows what he finally wants and now he can't have it um it's very bittersweet uh in in that kind of way and so the final analysis to me is this is a, and I'm paraphrasing something I wrote on Letterboxd, uh, which is it's a, this whole movie is a lens on viral fame and cancel culture. And it's a ride through how society cares more about what it thinks of you than who you actually are and how inescapable it is. The landscape that we create in our own minds for others, right? You are not who you actually are. You are who we feel like you are and you will be held accountable for it. <laughs> wow, oh. dude, that is such a man. It has such a great point. And it's, it's, it's inescapable. It's not like, it's not like you can just put your head in the sand and say, you know what? I don't care what you think. No, they, like it destroys his life completely for just being like who he is. Obviously he was never actually in anybody's dream. And Obviously, he would be mad if somebody spray paint. Anybody would be mad if somebody spray painted your car. So he uh, had the rant, and he was just trying to get into the 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 play to see his daughter. And the accident happened that broke that lady's finger. And like, he's not a violent guy, but it doesn't matter because everything was taken away from him because of perception. That is, wow, great point. Brutal, brutal. The my last little notes are on sound design, actually. The dinner party, I same thing with the uh, the early dinner with Sheila. Whenever he's on the phone, he's talking to his old buddy, and they're they're talking about the dinner party. And I loved as the conversation moves on in the dinner party about their dreams, and she grabs the phone to look at the you know Paul who was in this other girl's dreams, and she's looking at it and she's like, 
oh, and that realization is happening. I love that they completely cut out all the dialogue and it's just replaced with tense music. What they're saying doesn't matter. We understand on a visceral level that what she's realizing is this is the same guy. And now we're also uh, connecting it with how Paul is feeling. Like this is an out-of-body experience for him. And it's just really smart sound design to play. Let's get to the point, the emotional truth of the scene more than what's being said. We already know what's being said. It doesn't matter. So why repeat it? Let's just create another experience that's much more on the nose and and touching something you know deeper. And another great use of sound design in a different way is uh, early on in the film, right after that, not long after that, he's having that conversation with Janet um, about I'm getting offers to do interviews like and she's like, don't maybe you shouldn't do anything drastic. And he's kind of nodding. And then immediately we cut to uh, the breaking news story sound like dun, dun, dun. And it's a TV show interview. Like it's a really great comedic beat through sound design. Like he's being thoughtful, like, yeah, don't don't do anything drastic. And let's make the most dramatic sounds possible immediately after that uh, to, you know, drive home the point that he is going to do something drastic. Um, and here he is on. Yeah. He's just eating up the screen, like super excited. Great use of editing and sound design there for sure. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much as far as note wise, all I have. I think there's a lot that we could dive into in terms of, I don't know, the, the cancel culture aspect and viral fame and society and culture. Like, I think this movie has a lot to say about it and, it's really fun to analyze, I think, our parts that we play in that in small or big ways. Yeah. And to be aware of it. I don't know. I, 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 my feeling is if someone that I loved were to go through this, it's not going to change how I approach them. Like that's kind of just part of my personality that at the same time, I can imagine if I were to go through something like this, I would not do well. Like Paul came out yeah. of this much better than I would. Um, I would fall to pieces mm-hmm. and you'd probably find me somewhere way off the grid in like backwards China, like digging holes for some construction company. Like I would just completely <laughs> vanish. Uh, I would not come out of this with a book deal. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well done, Paul. The other thing I like about Paul Matthews is his initials are PM. Well, I like, you know, sleep, PM, sleep. nighttime. Oh, wow. Yeah. Little, little touches. You, I love, I love all of the insights you see in names. <laughs> I never see any of that stuff. And then, and then I talk to you and I'm like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> Duh. Oh my yeah. gosh. I don't know, man. Uh, final thoughts. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I really loved it. Enjoyed it. It's a, it's a really good movie to go see and then talk about, like go see it and then go have coffee or a dinner or something after. And, and I thought that it was beautifully executed from a direction cinematography standpoint and obviously from an acting standpoint. Um, I, they, I mean, the, the commercial for Norio was fantastically vomitous um, and accurate, uh, I would say. Uh, I would have liked, I, I guess one thing that I thought about was that I would have liked if Molly was less uh that way hmm. if it makes sense because i think one thing that the film did that is as unfair is that every time you saw somebody young unless it was 
you know, his kids really, and somewhat to them to a point, but anytime you saw somebody young, it was all, they were all just unlikable in, in a lot of ways. They were just very superficial and, um, Mm. kind of just, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. They were, it just painted all the younger people in this light of, of it's all about them all the time. And they're all only about social media and they're all, you know, about attention. It just made me feel like that. And it would have been nice if Molly's character was less that way. But when we see them meeting in the, in the bar, having the drink, she's talking like this and, and just, she's, she's that way too. And it would have been nice if there was a little bit, if it felt like there was a little bit more substance. Just maturity uh, wise. Maturity wise. Yeah, yeah, mm. exactly. Like, like she's in a boardroom with, you know, the, the acting director of this, this agency. And at first you think, oh, she's just going to bring him to the boardroom and leave. But no, she's in the boardroom. And I mean, maybe the point is, is to send this message, but it would have been nice if around him, they're all different kinds of people, including young people who are not the way that a lot of young people are like mm-hmm. very into their phones, very into social media, very into themselves, self-absorbed. So that way, when we go back to her apartment, it's really, it's, it's really um, a little bit more substantive rather than her just trying to, you know, um, act out her fantasy. But maybe that's the point is that she just wants to have her fantasy met and that's okay too. Yeah, I took her character as it's funny. I think I read a little bit more maturity into her and what was top of mind for her being around him, because that's really the only time we get to see her is when she's around him. And because of what she's been dreaming about, that's all she can think about when she's around him. And so I thought it was a nice touch, though, whenever we do meet her again after their sexual encounter asexual one might say yeah like uh, what <laughs> i don't know what you uh, watched <laughs> <laughs> and and they're on the uh he he jumps on the the conference call and she's on there and he hears her voice and that's it she's just there like she doesn't turn it into a thing i really appreciated that they let it just be that she's still going on she's doing her job she's there to be a professional um and so i read some maturity into some of the decisions that she made along the way even if one of those decisions was um i i got to take my shot i got to shoot it <laughs> like um yeah and of yeah. course just okay. wildly you. missing the the arena um and so yeah, yeah. The, I don't know. Different strokes. <laughs> okay, I'm done. <laughs> what are you? Okay, gonna... we're done. All right. Oh, what are you gonna yeah, that's recommend? It. That's it. It was fun. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I wasn't trying. I was trying to find uh, other. <laughs> All right. I was trying to find other kind of like movie, like dream movies that might, you know, be cool or like kind of dream esque movies that might be cool. And Lawnmower Man. I can't believe that we haven't. Oh. What? Lawnmower Man. Just kidding. Lawnmower Man. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, night, nightmare on Elm Street. Um, that's a little on the nose, right? Yeah. Uh, because of the Freddy reference. But uh, no, I'm, I can't believe we haven't recommended this. I'm going to recommend The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Oh, interesting. Which I loved 
I love that movie. I thought that uh, Ben Stiller did a great job in that. And it's it's really beautiful. And um, it's not really about dreams. It's about daydreaming, you mm-hmm. know, more than actual dreams, I think. Uh, but yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed that film. So I'm going to nice. recommend Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I'm going to recommend a new book coming out by friend of the show, Byron Reese. Um, it's called We Are Agora. Uh, he let me read this earlier this year as he was going through editing, man, I loved it. It's a really interesting view about the world, certainly about society, but how society stitches into something even bigger um, than itself. And that's really, really fascinating. And so he's come up with this idea of humanity being an actual living thing um, that he has named Agora. Um, he explains why he chose that name Agora in the book and he makes his case very well. Um, he compares humanity to other superorganisms. He calls us a superorganism um, and he compares it to other existing superorganisms like bees and really dude, it's fascinating. It's a really great read. And I, I hope people will be talking about this book after it comes out. It should be releasing any, any week now. I forget when the actual release date is, but I loved it. Uh, awesome. It's it's a beautiful, and I think it plays really well. I debated. I was like, oh, at the last minute, oh, it would have been cool to have Byron on to talk about this one because he might see other things in in that same idea. Because maybe dream scenario is and and viral fame and whatever cancel culture. Like you can look at that as a social construct for something, whether it's weeding out a cancer, right? In some ways this is a really good thing, right? Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby. Great. <laughs> we needed to purge them and society has a mechanism yeah. for that. Um, and so in, in the same way though, like getting out of a cancer, uh, you can also sometimes, I don't know, get rid of something healthy too. Um, and that like an autoimmune disease, like sometimes you can hurt yourself in the process of trying to do something good. Um, and maybe that's what this is. I don't know, but we are Agora is a really fascinating new thought about humanity and how we all connect together in a way that we could never really see uh, because of we're being part of the whole. Um, Yeah. So I will link that and secret life of Walter Mitty in the show notes. If you want to take a gander at those and stay tuned for next week, we're going to take a look at bad times at the El Royale and we should have a special guest on who worked on the film, um, a set decorator that, you know, started listening to the show and he was like, Hey guys, I like the show. And I was like, Hey, can we have you on? <laughs> so he, he was like, yeah, okay. Perfect. Uh, he's, he's worked on a lot of films. He's worked on the Revenant cabin in the woods. Uh, he worked on Pachinko Hamish, um, is his name. And so I'm, I'm really excited to hopefully, uh, the schedules work out and he's, he says he's available, but we all just know um, that sometimes it doesn't always like go according to plan. So uh, hopefully we'll have Hamish Purdy on next week. So stay tuned for that. And it'll be interesting to see what you think of the film, as well as any interesting tidbits uh, behind the scenes that we get from Hamish. Um, yeah. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, drop us a review, leave us a note if there's something you want us to talk about or the kinds of things you find interesting. If you want to leave a note on this episode, Give us your, what you walked away with. Like you've got two out of 30. So we got another 28 people to go to hear about uh, mm-hmm. all the possibilities. <laughs> um, yeah. You can leave a note on this episode at the pestlepodcast.com slash dream scenario.
And our quote of the day is from Jonathan Haidt. The most powerful force ever known on this planet is human cooperation, a force for construction and destruction. Very well said. Jonathan Haidt wrote a book with another guy, Greg Lukianoff, um, called Coddling of the American Mind. I read it a couple of years ago. Really good book. It's just an interesting conversation about uh, free speech in America. And I think they specifically were looking at college campuses at the time. There was just a lot of interesting things happening on college campuses around whether trying to cancel a guest speaker coming in because they didn't want to give them a platform or maybe a teacher said or did something that uh, students didn't like. And so they would get teachers fired um, and a lot of interesting dynamic things happening. And so that book was a really fascinating look and approach of what's going on. What are the good and the bad things that are happening? Um, and what can we learn from this? What should our approach be when handling things that we disagree with or things that we don't like? And I felt like it was a really healthy uh, dissection of what's going on in America lately. And this, I think, really sums it up. Like society can do a lot of really incredible things, you know, but once you have that much power, it's like nuclear energy, right? Uh, it can power a million homes and also destroy a million homes. <laughs> uh, it's all about who's holding it and and how they're going to use that kind of power. And yeah, so be, I guess, conscious of how you're holding that power as much as you can. I know we're all fallen human beings. And so I, I honestly think on average, everyone's doing the best they can. I really do. Um, and sometimes it's... Some people are not. Some people are actively trying to do the worst that they can for their own selfish purposes. Um, and, you, and I don't think you have to be a psychopath or a sociopath to be one of those people. I just think you it takes a level of immaturity that then becomes maturity when you sit and look back and say, oh, man, I shouldn't. I don't know why I did that. And that's where growth comes from. But on the whole, I really think people are trying to do their best. And sometimes they just fall short. Wow. Well said, man. I got nothing else to add. Beautiful. With that... The fun part starts. Uh, we're going to take a listen to a new track from Mad Valley. That's Todd's band. And this one is called I Don't Want to Be Careful. Bro, anything you want to say before uh, we take a listen? Uh, no. No. Let's just let this one speak for itself. All right, here we go.
there Not sure what it meant But now I don't know But who could take you from me Then expect me to love them Was a warrior then But now So there's a bit of a contrast between that song and the last song we played. The last one was pretty pop. <laughs> it was pretty not. Yeah. Uh, a lot going on in there. Um, yeah. It sounds like a, a clock ticking, of course. Um, and it's just so quiet and small. And then it opens up into this huge chorus. So I guess I'd love to hear, one, what the song's about. Two, how did you... What are the things you were thinking about in order to create that huge chorus, like on a practical level, what are the things that you say, this is how we're going to make this so big. And just like we're in the middle of a cathedral. Yeah. So walk me through all that, the clock, everything. Sure. Uh, so the clock was not something that I thought of first. First, I had this piano sound that I liked. And and really, actually, it was a these chords that I liked a lot. And I just, it was funny. I kept them. I just played these chords and I kept them in a session and I, it, I just exported it and I had a, a file of, of this like 20 second piece of music. And then like six months went by and I remember it was during COVID. I, I was just looking around on my computer and I found these chords. I was like, Oh my gosh, it was a perfect example of, I wasn't ready to write the song when I thought of the chords. 
And, but then when I heard it later, I was, and it was like, it was just the right time to hear it. The song wrote itself pretty quickly. I would say in under an hour, the whole thing was written. Oh, wow. And yeah, I mean, not recorded, obviously, but like the lyrically, lyrically it was. Mm-hmm. And when I say a song is written, I always mean lyrics. That's the most important thing. Lyrics and melody. Uh, it, you can change the music around any other song and, and it will probably work. But then I thought, okay, because I know what it's about now, it's about the idea of my father dying because he's getting older and he's not, he's with us still. But I was just trying to like think about and process what that will be like without him here anymore and what I want to say to him now. And then I started thinking about like, well, what has he said to me? And what he said to me is a couple of things that have always stuck with me. One of them is, is, well, uh, it's a funny saying, but like life is like a roll of toilet paper. It goes faster, the closer to the end you get. And I always responded like i i believe that i think that's true and i think a lot of that is because of our perception of life and reality and time and and we have so many things happening a lot when we get older that time just flies by faster think about how fast this last year went for you Mm -hmm. right and when you were eight that year might have felt like an eternity and there's a reason for that and so i thought wouldn't that be cool if i I mean, the clock thing is a little bit overdone. It, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of movies do it a lot, but I just liked the idea. It's not an actual clock. It's a, I took a metronome. I, I, I have it. I had, no, um, I had a necklace and I, I was wearing my necklace and it hit up against my desk and I was like, Oh, cause it, the, the one side of it hit first and then the other side. And so it wasn't like a click. It was like a clack kind of thing. And I liked that. And so I took it. And I inverted it and detuned the second one. So then it, so it's now it sounds like a clock, but I, I also thought, wouldn't that be cool if that changed over time? So the whole song speeds up, it goes from 120 beats per minute to 126 at the end. So it's constantly speeding up throughout the entire song But that to give you that feel of at the end, it's going faster than it was at the beginning, mm. even if you don't notice it. Uh, and that was the point of not noticing it. The point was you just kind of feel it and you don't notice it. And so and I liked that about that. About the chorus, that is a lot of drums. A lot of drums. I mean, over the life of this song, it's which is, you know, a couple years, I've been to the studio three times to record more and more drums. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The beat, the so in the first chorus, there's very few drums. It's goo, goo. That's basically it. Um, but there was a beat that I that I came up with um that we you can hear in the second chorus where it goes this is this tom thing. And I liked that it wasn't a straight beat. It wasn't a kick, snare, kick, snare. It felt like that was just, you know, a little trite for this. So And are those timpanies, um, the big ones? No, there's a, the beat is, that whole thing was because I didn't want it to be four on the floor. You don't hear that in the first chorus. Mm-hmm. First chorus is all about, there's a bunch of synths. There's some, some guitar, but it's less guitar driven. There's some synths, synth pads. The drums have a ton of reverb and room on them. So when you hear the, 
it lasts for a good two seconds. And that does a lot to fill out. There's not a whole lot in the first chorus, believe it or not. Most of it is in the third chorus, hmm. uh, second and third. But a lot of it is drums, uh, to be honest. So it, part of it, because I've heard you do this in other songs, I'm guessing is you're using some of that rhythm section, but it's almost like it's halftime in terms of your approach to the, the, the speed of delivering those drums. And so another, you know, the, the tempo might be at 120, but you're playing it as if it's 60. Like it's, it feels like you're slowing down, even though the speed hasn't actually changed because of the lack of consistent, quick drums. Um, yeah. Does that yeah. track? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like, so the second, what's different? Why do I need to listen to the second chorus? Right. The first one has already, it's already big, mm. you know, it's already got all the same elements. It's got the drums, it's got synths, it's got guitar, it's got vocals, bass, bass is another big part. Um, so what's different about the second chorus? Why, why should it, it shouldn't be the same. It should be different. How would it be different? Okay. Well, more drums, like double time. It feels like a double time situation because there's a snare in there because there's toms in there in between the big hits also there's more harmonies the harmonies are all over the place uh that was a lot of fun i remember scott coming over one day i had just finished building out the studio he came over one day and he's like what are you working on and i showed him this song he goes oh my god because he had just finished playing god of war <laughs> and he, so he was like he's like and i hadn't played it yet he said is this is this like you know supposed to be like a god of war thing um i said no but it is about a father and a son <laughs> which is what god of war is about and uh and so we spent you know an hour or two just doing harmonies just working on our harmonies and stuff so he's all over this all over that so there's i would i think there's like 12 layers of harmonies going on in the chorus too Dang. so it's just it's super full and then in the last chorus it's one it's faster to the the drums are straighter so do do ga do ga do do ga do ga that's not in the second chorus the second chorus do do ga do it's like more uh-huh. like tom based so you have more rhythm in the third chorus even than the second or the first obviously and then it's just balls to the wall giant drums giant guitars like everything i could throw at it um huge bass i have a two bass synth going on and bass guitar there might no there's not two bass guitars and bass guitar and they're panned and uh, and stuff and so we took a lot of uh of liberties to make that as gigantic as it could be and also there's probably a lot of stuff playing in there that i don't remember because a lot of a lot of what recording is, is just based on feel. Does this feel like it's real, like honest? You know, I don't care about playing it live. Uh, what I care about is when I listen to it, does it feel like it, like the message I'm trying to get across, which is the biggest, almost like the throes of the end of your life kind of thing. You know, like everything that I could throw at this, I wanted to throw at it. And does it feel like that? And to me, it does. Every time that kicks in, I'm right after the after the guitar solo. First off, the guitar solo is fantastic, and Scott played that, and he did an amazing job. But after that, where it because it's already giant during the solo, it's already big coming out of that bridge. What else can we do? I, you know, uh, it was it was a 
a lot of sitting around and just listening to transitions and how that transition is going to lift from even where it was at. So what we ended up doing, I believe, on this track was we got the last chorus where we wanted, which was as giant as it we could get. And then we took things away for the solo. Mm-hmm. You know, so instead of thinking, what can we add? We got that last piece done and then we took things away for what was before it so that when it came in so that when the last course came in it felt like a lift instead of just flat you know and that what i think i've been trying to do a lot more lately which is take away mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. you know uh, the best part is no part kind of thing and it's really it's really helped i like things feeling full so it's hard for me to pull things out because i'm like oh i love that part and i love that part you know but does it serve the song does it serve you know the honesty of the message kind of thing yeah. and that's i think i like movies like that too yeah i think we both do yeah <laughs> yeah dude thank you for playing it man i appreciate yeah, it Yeah, man is that the final single that's the final single the record comes out on the 22nd dope i'm right. done I'm well, done man <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll link it all in the show notes so if you want to listen to the album um you'll find that on apple podcast uh, apple what music and music. spotify and all the things um youtube what have you uh yeah well thanks for playing these tracks man um make sure you don't copyright slam my youtube channel sir <laughs> <laughs> no promises man there's eight seconds that's it <laughs> awesome yeah. yeah dude well done man thank you man thank you for all your support throughout the release of all this and and for being willing to to play my music and talk about it and stuff it's it it's been a lot of fun i don't always get to talk about it so it it, i love doing that and i love that you're interested in it and and i i really appreciate it so thank you dude my pleasure man thanks for letting us play it yeah well and thank you for listening hopefully you've enjoyed this episode please make sure subscribe review us where wherever you can as share us with your friends and if there's a film you'd like to see us pick apart please let us know maybe we'll maybe we'll cover it who knows who knows uh but until next week i'm todd i'm wes go watch the movies